My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. This week's episode is a somewhat unusual one. Regular listeners will know that the standard format for Talking Radical Radio is one episode, one topic, one interview, and then something different the next week. However, very rarely, when there is a struggle of sufficient magnitude and an interview of sufficient richness to justify it, I will do a two-part show. The only other instance to date was the interview I did early in 2013 with Rushdie and Marine about lessons from the big student strike in Quebec. On both today's show and next week's show, I will be speaking with Miles Howe. Howe is an editor and a journalist with the Halifax Local of the Media Co-op, a cooperatively organized grassroots media network with locals and working groups in cities across the country. Over the last year, Howe has provided truly excellent coverage of the struggle against hydraulic fracturing or fracking and against colonization in New Brunswick, which has been led by people from the Elsa Buktuk First Nation and quite broadly supported in the area. In the interests of full disclosure, I should say that I, too, am involved with the media co-op, in particular with the active working group in Sudbury, Ontario, though I had never met or interacted with Howe before the process that led to this interview. My original intent was to have a conversation with him about the relationship between grassroots journalism and social movements or communities in struggle. The bulk of that portion of our conversation will be the basis of next week's episode. In the course of doing the interview, we ended up covering a lot of ground related to both the background of the struggle at Elsa Booktook, as well as some of the key events there in the last year. So while hearing from a journalist, however grassroots and however excellent his work, is no substitute for hearing directly from those engaged in struggle, I thought that using that material to produce this week's episode would still be a useful contribution. Howe talks a bit about the historical background, about the lead-up and events that initiated the current phase of struggle in New Brunswick, and about some of the key moments of conflict and crisis that he observed and participated in as community members and allies attempted to prevent a surveying company from engaging in seismic testing, something he'll explain in the interview, as a prelude to fracking. But we won't get to dealing with it in detail until next week. His account in this week's show, which is in stark contrast to the way that the struggle at Elsa Booktook has been portrayed in the mainstream, suggests some things about the role and relevance of grassroots journalism and grassroots media more generally. I spoke with him by Skype to phone from Halifax. My name is Miles Howe. I'm an editor for the Media Co-op. I'm the Halifax-based editor. I also work for the Halifax Media Co-op in a variety of capacities. One of them is reporting. The Media Co-op is a cooperative-based model. It's a solidarity co-op. It has four locals, Halifax, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and uh, is people-powered reporting, basically. I became involved in reporting on the struggle against shale gas in southeastern New Brunswick in June of 2013. Let's move into things specifically in Elsipoktok. Tell me briefly, what is seismic testing that the company was doing there? Seismic testing was taking place in two distinct manners. One was setting up lines of geophones and batteries along the highways where there were paved sections of road. And in those cases, what they would use was thumper trucks or vibrosis trucks. Those trucks have pads that descend on them. They roll in a line of about four trucks 
and then they literally vibrate the ground to get seismic information that way. When there were areas that were not accessible via pavement, they would use more invasive means. They would use these pieces of equipment called shot hole drillers, which drill approximately 10 meters down. An explosive charge is planted, it's detonated, and then the information that is gathered is again gathered through geophones. And what are they looking to learn? They're looking to find shale gas deposits so that they can then hydraulically frack for natural gas. And drawing on your your months of interacting with community members and so on, what's the basis of the resistance to them doing that? Why are people objecting? It's a very water-intensive process. The water itself is then, it's rather unknown what the mixture of chemicals it's added to that water. It's still patented, I believe, by Halliburton, what that chemical mixture is. But some neurotoxins have been identified, such as benzene. So people were afraid that this would pollute their water realistically and that they would not have enough water to go around. So it was the pollution of the environment through water, air, and also a lack of water. That was the main driver. Bear in mind that these are communities of largely Acadians and Micmac and rural poor that are not necessarily living as, definitely not living as urban folk do. There's a far greater degree of interaction with the natural landscape and a dependency still on the natural landscape to provide food and medicines. So that a threat to that, to what remains of that is taken very seriously. And I understand that for at least some of the people who have been involved in opposing SWN, that part of the reasoning for them doing that is around sovereignty issues. Is that the case? Well, most certainly it plays into it whenever you're starting to look at resource development in unceded territory, the larger issue of sovereignty and the treaties that were signed between the Micmac, the Wabanaki Confederacy, and the Crown, as it were, don't cede territory and that the consultation process that is required has been largely usurped. And then leading the First Nations people down a road that certainly not everybody was comfortable going down. So in that territory, there are treaties, but they're treaties that did not cede the land and that leave sovereignty with the indigenous nations? Is that is that sort of a fair assessment of the situation? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, originally there was these treaties of peace and friendship were signed between the French and the First Nations people, in this case largely the Mi'kmaq, and after the Treaty of Utrecht handed over French territories in the New World to the British, the British wrongly assumed that they had inherited this land, whereas it was never ceded to the French either. None of the treaties, they're known as a covenant chain of treaties that exist between the British and the Mi'kmaq and then later the Wabanaki Confederacy ever cede territory either. They remain treaties of peace and friendship, not of you know surrendering title. And are there ways that dispute about the status of those treaties has bubbled up before? Has there Have there been previous instances of settler companies, settler governments encroaching in various ways and Mi'kmaq and Wabanaki people in the area saying, no, this is this is our land? Yeah, most certainly. There have been those. They've largely dealt with things like hunting, fishing rights. There have been battles over logging as well. But uh, yeah, it's certainly not a settled issue and it's certainly not the first time that there has been a clash. I mean, this, this would appear to be the first time over water issues 
And in the direct instance of water, water is not necessarily mentioned in the treaty, but there also is, a, I believe it's pronounced sui generis, which means that things that are not mentioned in the treaties fall to the, the First Nations people to be the stewards of those things. So things not mentioned in the treaties remain in the hands of First Nations people. So water, in this case, is not contained within those covenant chain of treaties, which would suggest that water rights fall to the Mi'kmaq people. So this probably happened before you were directly on the scene, but tell me what you've learned about how the resistance started. In 2010, the then Liberal government of Sean Graham, through a tendering process, gave a large amount of land to SWN Resources Canada, which is a subsidiary of SWN. That was for exploratory licenses to um, over a million hectares of New Brunswick. They had attempted to seismic test in 2011 in uh, an adjoining county and were met with some rather fierce resistance as well. There was uh, far less in the way of RCMP presence at that point, though, in 2011. Equipment was blockaded. There was uh, lots of stuff destroyed lots of equipment destroyed. So the company left. They returned in 2013 to an area known as Kent County, which is traditional Mi'kmaq territory and an area traditionally known as Sigmiktuk, which means the drainage area, loosely translated into English. The largest reserve in New Brunswick, I believe, and certainly the largest reserve near to or in Kent County is Elsebuktuk, which is located about 10 kilometers north of the community of Rexton Rishabukto. So the struggle seems to have begun in late May of 2013, this most recent struggle, when a Stantec water testing truck, which had been subcontracted to test wells, was seized when it went to the Wilson's gas station, which was on reserve in Elsebuktuk. The truck was seized and then given over to the RCMP detachment in Alphabetuk, and they then returned the truck to Stantec. That was sort of the first real clash, let's say. A few days later, I believe two people were arrested. One was a community member from Alphabetuk. She was rather violently arrested. Her arm was twisted backwards, and some sacred objects that she was carrying were taken from her forcefully, a staff with some eagle feathers on it, as well as a drum and a local uh, non-Indigenous man as well was arrested at that point. Two days later, and I believe a trio of other people were arrested while on the highway. This is when they were testing on Highway 126, which is uh, one of the relatively popular artery, sort of a back road that will link up to Moncton to the rest of northern New Brunswick. More clashes ensued throughout the summer, probably about 35 people were arrested before a rather large-scale blockade of equipment took place on a back road on July 28th, and that was a blockade of SWN's equipment while it was trying to test in some swampy, Irving-regulated crown land. Uh, Just a, a quick interruption to provide some context for listeners not in the Maritimes. Irving, which Howe refers to here and elsewhere in the interview, is a wealthy and powerful corporation and family that are big players in both the oil industry and in the for-profit media sector in eastern Canada. A bunch of logging roads and the police, as well as Industrial Security Limited, which is an Irving subsidiary, were definitely providing backup at that point, all throughout the summer, really, to SWN's operations. 
after that blockade took place, well, just prior to that, the invitation went out to the Micmac Warrior Society to come and assist the community. They're not joined up to any one community, nor are they representative of Indian Act philosophy, which is on reserve or necessarily respecting the authority of the chief of any one community. I believe that they're open to working with representatives of the Indian Act, but are not not restricted to any one community. They arrive, I would say, mid-July, and through their presence and through this blockade, which involved members of the community as well, I guess things got too heated for SWN, and they left for the summer. They came back at the end of September, and they were found at a Irving-owned compound, like a fenced-in area, probably about 400 meters by 400 meters, and the equipment was promptly blockaded. Some trees were felled. Things just went that way. How did it go from people being, you know, unhappy with what was going on to people actually taking action? I mean, it began, I guess, as any other resistance begins with organization, seeking out allies. I don't think there was anything necessarily magical about how this resistance occurred versus how any other protest occurred. I mean, it was, uh, it's an issue that, that was perceived to face not only Indigenous people, right? I mean, it's water, so... This was an issue that certainly people were getting on board on in the local area. I mean, on top of that, it was a very interesting kind of issue because it was First Nations-led, and I mean, the settlers or colonial people were were very cognizant, I would say, for the most part, of allowing it to be a First Nations-led movement. And I believe that a lot of people actually became quite savvy, quite educated, and quite, I would say, humble even to the notion of putting themselves in the path of decolonization, let's say, and that was made all the more real by more political awareness that a lot of the cuts that the Harper government had done to the Navigable Waters Act, for example, a lot of the Environment Act, you know, these things that were that were sort of uh, safeguards against industrial development had been removed very strategically. So the settler population, in an attempt to perhaps safeguard their own well-being, quickly got in line and quickly understood that understanding and respecting treaty and title from a Mi'kmaq perspective in this case was their best option towards opposing fracking, as it were, or opposing seismic testing. So there was there was a very interesting relationship that began to be formed as people took their own crash courses on treaty and title that they probably never did before. And did the did that relationship building begin before the initial incident with the water truck, or was it something that happened in response to direct action resistance becoming a bit more visible? I don't think that anybody had like a textbook out prior to the summer starting in terms of like what's going to happen or who's going to do what or how it's going to go. So as, you know, as resistance grew and as sort of on the ground stuff grew and, you know, just people beginning to see one another... I don't even think that these were necessarily even communities that really, like, you know, hung out too much on a regular basis. It might just be me, but I don't think, you know, necessarily people from Smith Corners or Brown's Yard, for example, you know, necessarily think, like, let's go down to Elsa Bookcook and hang out for the evening. So, yeah, to answer your question in the long, long way around, I think it was related to resistance. I don't think it was necessarily, like, hey, who are you prior to resistance beginning? I think it was resistance-driven and finding allies in resistance because these are communities, you know, it's 
it's a it is a rural poor area as well, right? So you're dealing with people who likely are are happy with where they're living, don't necessarily have the money to move anywhere else, and uh, do depend on that do depend on their natural environment, and you know don't want to see their water poisoned or don't want to see a gas well in their backyard. So seeking out allies who might feel the same way, it doesn't necessarily matter what your first language is or what skin color you are. At that point, water was that great unifier. But yeah, I don't think that it was really like that strong relationships that existed before. In some cases, maybe, but for the most part, it was resistance-driven friendship born out of necessity. And when you were giving that that bit of an overview at the start, I think we sort of got to the point of the, the big blockade in the fall. Talk a little bit about the events that have led to the present moment from that big blockade. You know, it, it was maybe some people's kind of first kick at the can. Certainly mine in terms of reporting on it. It's not every day that people blockade, you know, several million dollars of industrial equipment. And then the notion of what you do with it once you got it is also kind of a, a weird and kind of on-the-fly situation to be presented with. I don't think there were any professional blockaders amongst the crowd. I mean, even the Micmac Warrior Society... I don't think that it is every day that these people organize and and do what happened. So, I mean, from a from an eye in the sky, hindsight is 2020. Sure, there were a lot of rookie mistakes or whatever. The company SWN sought an injunction against the blockade. They they did receive it, and that was to allow their equipment to move freely along Highway 134, where they were originally blockaded. And then it was sort of up to the police to enforce that blockade. There was certainly a scenario that was created between the RCMP in conjunction with security guards where they they sort of scripted this scenario where the security guards for several weeks between late September and October 15th had organized between the RCMP and the Micmac Warrior Society who were basically in charge of, let's call it security at the blockade, that those security guards who were guarding the equipment inside the blockade would leave via a back gate, and they never approached the front gate, because if you were to leave by by the front gate, those security guards who, in some cases, were armed, I don't believe that they had firearms, but they definitely had sticks and you know random security guard stuff, that if they were to leave by the front gate, they'd be smack dab in the middle of the blockade area. And it wasn't as though it would be unsafe for them, but it was understood between the RCMP and the and the Warrior Society that that was not a desired potential for conflict. And then what you see on the 15th and 16th is videotape of uh, security guards, especially one individual who is a former New Brunswick Highway patrolman, and he's out in the middle of a sacred fire area carrying a baton, I believe. He doesn't have it in his hands, but he's armed. And so the understanding was that you were not to approach the sacred fire if you were armed security guards or otherwise. And then on the 15th, you see this man acting in a completely, I would say, provocative manner, looking to get a rise. And this is a well, this is a trained, you know, this is a cop, a former cop. And he's out there. And then you have one member of the Micmac Warrior Society with a, you know, with a, with a rap sheet. You know, he's a bit of a loose cannon at that point and starts swearing at the guard who's out there in a sacred fire area. And this is all being videotaped by the guards themselves. And then, you know, the guy, I give him a little push, literally like a brush on the arm as he puts him back 
into the compound area and says, you know, don't come out here again, I'll effing kill you or whatever it is. There's you have a threat and then you have, even though there's a back gate, you have unlawful confinement apparently. And because he brushed him, you have an assault charge. And then you have you have a, uh, a created buildup of this scenario on the 15th and 16th where there, are, where there were charges laid on some of these Micmac warriors during those dates. And then from there, what you get is this RCMP scenario where, well, things were escalating, so we were forced to come in on the 17th with, like, 60 guns drawn. But you have a scenario where they can then justify that, right? And you don't really – you don't hear about that from – necessarily people who were not there. You're not hearing that from the mainstream media. You're certainly not hearing that from the RCMP or Irving or SWN. Like, yeah, we instigated a response. And sure, it was up to those people to respond to it. We were fairly sure that they would, and they did. So then we have this our, our own justification for our raid on the 17th. And on the 17th, it was absolutely crazy. Like, it was a you know, pre-dawn attack. Essentially, it was, I don't know how many guns were drawn, about 60. When I woke up in the morning, there were about 60 pistols and assault rifles pointed at me when I went up to the main encampment area to go get my camera to begin videotaping what was going on, or and photographing what was going on. And um, it was crazy. I saw people get shot with less lethal rounds right in the legs. You know, people get taken down, tackled, kicked in the head, stripped of their shirts, young women flipped other women dragged by the hair, you know, it was way over the top. And what you see instead is, you know, this, you know, six cop cars burning and, oh, woe is me. There's like, it's far more important. That it appears that that equipment was damaged and many rumors are surfacing now that those cars were, were set for the, the auction block anyway, that all the computers and all the firearms had been removed from them prior to them, you know, potentially being uh, just sort of left there for whatever might happen to them and we're just turned the other way. And it's far more important, apparently, that, that those cop cars were burned rather than a whole number of people were traumatized, brutalized, bear sprayed, shot with less lethal rounds, almost lost their legs. Like, things were out of control. And the things that were out of control was the police for all the controlled anger of the demonstrators or the protesters or the protectors, whatever you want to call it, I don't think there's a lot of police lining up with injuries or trauma related to that event. And I'm not sure why, you know, is that the mainstream massaging the message or is that the police, you know, very much presenting a table full of, oh, we found three guns and a bunch of ammunition and some Molotov cocktails or something. Well, fair enough, but how many shots did you fire at people? How many people did you hit? How many people did you pepper spray? How many people did you arrest? How many guns did you point versus the other side? And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the classic where the protectors or the protesters have to live under a microscope where their every action, oh, they didn't, you know, they didn't blow their nose in the morning, so they must be criminals or, you know, they, uh, they smoked a joint, so they're, you know, a bunch of hippies and miscreants. Whereas the cops who come in can just literally beat the shit out of women and just be like somehow protecting the peace or some, you know, ridiculous, I don't, yeah, I don't even get it. And I guess I'm starting to rant here, but that's what the 17th was to me. And I saw the whole thing go down. And after the the raid on the 17th, what 
what happened after that? I mean, I, I believe that the injunction was renewed and the blockade ended. Is that accurate? Uh, the blockade was over because, I mean, there was nothing more to blockade. The, the RCMP liberated the equipment, so the equipment left. And then the SWN wanted to test on an adjoining highway. So it began to lay out more seismic equipment. It wanted to get its testing done. I believe it was probably related to a contract that they had signed with the province where they had to get a particular percentage done in order to meet their contractual obligations and not default on some loans or something like that. I can't find the exact data related to it, but I, I think it's out there. They you know, were then pushing again to seismic test in an area quite close to where they had just you know, destroyed. And so they started doing that. And I mean, the images of this protest, albeit the mainstream images of cop cars burning and, you know, people throwing stuff at police or whatever, were being broadcast nationally, probably internationally. And so support was actually coming into the, the area now. They erected a new camp uh, along the Highway 11. And the company asked for a new injunction after its equipment was, you know, subsequently being destroyed again and its equipment being halted again on the highways and they asked for a new injunction. They got that new injunction, and then they asked for that injunction to be extended because they couldn't get their work done fast enough. And then, yeah, people responded by lighting tires on the highway and just, you know, at some point, I mean, what are you going to do? You beat people back long enough and sure, some tires are going to get lit on fire. That's pretty much the way it goes. Again, it's fascinating that people are like, oh, my goodness, tires on fire, and not like, oh, my goodness, cops are beating the shit out of women. Like it's it's again like it speaks to the the idiocy of our society really that objects have far more value than than indigenous women for example and that that goes far beyond this struggle and goes into other areas of struggle as well. Another quick interruption: uh, if listeners wish to learn more about missing and murdered indigenous women, they can go to rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca and search for the episode of Talking Radical Radio with Audrey Huntley and Krista Williams that aired in January of 2014. And it's it's totally shameful that we do focus on six cars or burning tires, and not necessarily the the real desire behind that, like, do you not see that people really don't want it? How about now? Now that there's a line of tires blocking the highway, how about now? Like, it just kind of continues. I guess people just don't get it. it it's sort of like a fight or something, like a, like a, you know, like a UFC fight or something, rather than, a, than an actual will of people to not have their traditional territory taken from them and literally destroyed in, in front of their very eyes. You have been listening to part one of my interview with Miles Howe, an editor and journalist with the Halifax Media Co-op, who in the last year has done some crucial reporting on the struggle against fracking and colonization in New Brunswick, being led by people from Elsa Booktook First Nation. To learn more about his work, go to halifax.mediacoop.ca, that's halifax.mediacoop.ca, and search for his name. And please tune in again next week and listen to part two of this interview, where we will talk more explicitly about the relationship between grassroots journalism and social movements or communities in struggle. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.